From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, December 7th. I'm Marco Werman. Protests continue in Egypt after the opposition rejects President Morsi's call for dialogue. But as you'll hear, Morsi still has strong support from the Muslim Brotherhood. And later, we continue our series on cancer in the developing world. Today, why so many patients around the globe don't have access to pain relief. The fact that what stands between them and the relief of that pain is a drug that costs $2 a week, I think is just really unconscionable. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The tanks and barbed wire around Egypt's presidential palace could not contain a new wave of protests in Cairo today. Thousands of demonstrators broke through to surge toward the palace. They went to say no to President Mohamed Morsi and to the draft constitution Morsi wants to put to a referendum next week. But the president and his Islamist supporters aren't giving in. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Cairo. Egypt's rival political factions have been bitterly divided since the elections in June. But listen to voices from different groups, and there's a common theme right now. No compromise. One of Egypt's leading secular opposition politicians and former presidential candidate Hamdin Sabahi told a crowd in Tahrir Square this morning, it's too late, too late to negotiate with President Morsi. Egyptian blood has been spilled, even if the president backs down, cancels the decree that grants him sweeping powers, and postpones the constitutional referendum, Morsi must go, he said. At a mosque on the outskirts of the square, a Muslim preacher with wildly different views from Sabahi nevertheless agrees that Morsi must go. The preacher provides religious justification for opposing the president. Sharia law is not compatible with this government, the imam says. Our goal is to build an Islamic state, not a democracy with liberals and secular people. But many Islamists still support Mohamed Morsi, a former leader of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood. At Cairo's Al-Azhar Mosque today, mourners attended the funeral of two men said to be Brotherhood members. They were killed during violent clashes near the presidential palace on Wednesday night. The faithful chanted in support of Islamic law, and they denounced those responsible for the deaths. In recent demonstrations, several offices of the Muslim Brotherhood and its Freedom and Justice Party have been vandalized, including the group's Cairo headquarters last night. Standing next to a pile of burned-up office furniture outside the building, 18-year-old Mohab said he joined the crowd that broke inside. We want to uh, let Mohamed Morsi go like Mubarak. Mohamed Morsi not good. He went on to say that Morsi was elected by fraud and that the Brotherhood is not good for Egypt. 
That's a similar message thousands of demonstrators brought to the presidential palace again today. One protester told me that Morsi is trying to make himself the god of Egypt. Another said the president has crossed a line and needs to be stopped. After we saw people attacked and killed at the palace, he said, people will not allow dictatorship anymore. As the crowds grew into the tens of thousands near the presidential palace tonight, reports came in from across Egypt of more demonstrations and counter-demonstrations, some of them violent. Opposition leaders are rejecting any negotiations with President Morsi. For now, the two sides remain on a collision course. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. Follow Matthew's tweets from the streets of Cairo. He's at Matthew J. Bell. And to see his pictures from the Egyptian capital, go to theworld.org. Despite all the protests, President Morsi still has strong support, particularly among members of the group he hails from, the Muslim Brotherhood. Gihad el-Haddad is chief advisor to Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood. He joins us now from Cairo. Uh, Mr. Haddad, President Morsi says he will hold a dialogue meeting tomorrow. Who is he going to talk to? There are many parties at the moment that have uh, submitted names that uh, they want to talk to, lots of which just now is the Ghadith Thawra party, the Revolution Tomorrow party. But I think that a lot of the um, opposition members that do not have other interests in the equation are um, genuine in their desire to find dialogue. Some opposition members indeed have announced that uh, they're not going to go to dialogue and they don't believe dialogue is an option uh, unless it's conditional. And of course, we don't uh, um, find this to be a a very reasonable argument, but they can have their say um, and they can demonstrate against the president in the streets, but they represent their own opinions. The National Salvation Front uh, has rejected this dialogue tomorrow, and they're pretty mainstream. Um, yes, they did. And um, I wouldn't call them mainstream, but I call them one of the strongest elements of the opposition and most vocal of them. But of course, we have our own reservation in the fact that they do not condemn the violence against a lot of the other factions in Egypt. And the fact that they've aligned themselves quite closely with members of the previous regime, we actually have an objective of removing from the political scene of Egypt. Um, and when the revolutionaries share our objectives in that. I would understand, of course, some of the frustration of leading members of the Salvation Front, the new constitution actually bars one of them, Muammar Musa, from politics for 10 years because he was a minister in the Mubarak government and he was a member of the Mubarak political office. I see a lot of frustration and I understand the frustration because there's a huge lack of trust amongst the Egyptian population and amongst the uh, political forces. Of course, the polarization isn't helping that much now. But at the end of the day, this president was elected with no constitution and parliament in place. So it makes perfect sense that he would protect the very institutions that are set out to constrain and limit his power. Mr. Haddad, uh, the the president, President Morsi, has called the people who are protesting thugs. Uh, Who does he think is behind these protests? He, I don't think he did. He actually made the distinction that the protesters are largely peaceful, yet some thugs group are part of these protests. They managed to infiltrate them and do a lot of acts of violence. I mean, um, But, but who, does, who does the president think is behind the protests? He didn't clarify. He basically left it to the judiciary and the prosecutor general to do that on his behalf, which is a wise thing to say. I mean, it wouldn't be taken lightly if a president points the finger at specific individuals without providing enough legal evidence. So I think it's wise to leave it to the judiciary. But they do exist on the scene. They were photographed. They were seen in videos. They attacked and scaled the presidential palace wall. They even attacked the presidential motorcade and and, uh, heavily injured one of the drivers. Is President Morsi prepared to push through the draft constitution despite all the opposition to it? 
yes, the, the opposition is still representative, and uh, I think that at the end of the day, they can't speak for the majority of the Egyptian people, and we've seen that in the demonstration held by President Morsi's supporters next to Cairo University, where the numbers escalated all the way up to 6 million plus, almost triple or quadruple the numbers of the opposition in their protests. What about the emergency powers President Morsi took by decree a few weeks ago? How long will he hold on to them? He didn't really take new powers. He provided immunity to the Constitutional Assembly and to the um, Upper House of Parliament, the only other two elected bodies in Egypt. The immunity that he has on supremacy acts is actually part of the Constitution of Egypt of 1971. How, how long will this exceptional situation remain? Eight days. Eight days. He eight days not, from now or eight days them. after the vote? No, no, eight days from now. In his um, address yesterday, he said that at the time of the announcement of the referendum result, his constitutional declaration is null and void. I mean, you can certainly understand why Egyptians are angry and also suspicious, because former President Mubarak, uh, his state of emergency lasted decades. No, no, but this is not a state of emergency, and this is only a protection to two levels of acts of the president. Of course, nothing to do with a state of emergency. It doesn't even provide any power to the police or the judiciary or any other part of the state. It only protects the presidential constitutional declarations and the presidential legislative-issued laws. So you're saying that the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of protesters are, are just misinformed? Um, I think many of them are, and I also think that the real issue that they're protesting is the lack of trust in President Morsi, because he has indeed announced this exceptional status, which was nothing new actually legally, but then again, judges differ on that. But at the same time, he hasn't used it yet. It's all speculations that this would allow him power to utilize this in the wrong direction, but he never has, and he never will utilize him, hopefully, and he promised this to um, on public television. We only have eight days left, and we hope that no situation arises that um, will require the need for him to use this power. Gihad El-Haddad, Chief Advisor to Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood. Thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome. Thank you. Government agencies and rescue teams in the Philippines are warily watching Typhoon Bopa again. The huge storm blasted the southern part of the island nation earlier this week before moving out to sea. But now forecasters are warning the typhoon might turn back toward land and hit the country again farther to the north. The world's Peter Thompson has been keeping tabs on the storm. You could almost say that Filipinos are used to natural disasters. The Philippines gets way more than its share of tropical storms, not to mention earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. But Typhoon Bopa seemed to come almost out of nowhere. It came outside of the usual typhoon season and hit part of the country that's off the usual storm track. It was the country's strongest storm of the year when it hit earlier this week. Combine that with a hilly landscape ravaged by mining and a population unprepared for a storm, And the awful result is more than 400 dead, nearly as many missing, and more than 300,000 homeless. This man was one of the lucky ones. We were hearing loud winds that night. We didn't know where to run. The winds and the rains brought by the typhoon were so strong. Others told of shards of metal roofing being hurled through the air like machetes. Officials in Compostela Valley, one of the worst-hit provinces on the island of Mindanao, We're considering mass graves for unclaimed bodies because of health concerns. Officials have confirmed more than 250 dead in just that one region as rescuers continue to dig through mud and debris today in search of more bodies and any possible trapped survivors. Philippines President Benigno Aquino visited the region today and promised to find ways to avoid a similar disaster in the future. The country's interior minister pointed to allegations of illegal mining and haphazard building on dangerous terrain, both of which are common in the region. 
One thing that most seem in agreement on is that the storm was highly unusual for this time of year and this part of the Philippines. For, for almost 50 years in Yubatan. For almost 50 years in Nubatan, this was the first time we experienced such tragedy. I know almost all of the people there. The storm came amid a rash of highly unusual extreme weather events around the world this year, and barely more than a month since another freak storm, Hurricane Sandy, hit the U.S. East Coast, causing tens of billions of dollars in damage. No one can definitively tie these or any other extreme weather events to climate change, but scientists say they're the kind of thing the world can expect more of as the atmosphere warms. And the question of a link was clearly on the mind of the Philippines' envoy to the U.N. climate summit in Qatar this week. Yesterday, the envoy, Nader Evsano, delivered an impassioned plea to his fellow negotiators. We are suffering. There is massive and widespread devastation back at home. Hundreds of thousands of people have been rendered homeless. And the ordeal is far from over. Madam Chair, we have never had a typhoon like Bopa, which has wreaked havoc in a part of the country that has never seen a storm like this in half a century. And heartbreaking tragedies like this is not unique to the Philippines. I appeal to the whole world. I appeal to the leaders from all over the world to open our eyes to the stark reality that we face. Sano's plea and the unfolding disaster back in the Philippines don't seem to have dissolved any of the gridlock at the Doha climate talks, which, as in years past, went far past their deadline, with negotiators struggling to achieve consensus on even the modest goals on the table. For The World, I'm Peter Thompson. What's the biggest story of the year? Well, in South Korea, journalists think it's the man who got the planet doing the horse dance. That's coming up on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Spain's national government and the country's various autonomous regions often bicker. These days, thanks to the economic crisis, they often bicker about money. But the latest regional dispute is about something else, language. In Catalonia, the region that includes Barcelona, public school students are taught mainly in Catalan, not in Spanish. That's been the deal since Spain became a democracy in the late 1970s. But now Spain's central government is trying to amend that agreement. That's enraging Catalans and even dragging their beloved soccer club into the fray. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Barcelona. In Spain, politics is never far from sports. Football club Barcelona, the most winning team in soccer of the last decade, is no exception. The club, known just as Barca around here, is inseparable from Catalan culture and identity. Its slogan, Barca, more than a club. So as Spain's government proposes making Spanish education available in all regions of the country, including in Catalonia, Barca officials, coaches, and players have joined the protests. Even Barca's star player, Lionel Messi, who's not Catalan. He's Argentine, though he grew up here. I studied and was educated in Catalan, Messi told reporters after a recent game, and it was never a problem. On the contrary, it's better to make laws that contribute to our society rather than create divisions, he said, referring to the proposed education reform. Currently, public schools in Catalonia only offer one or two hours of Spanish a week, even though Catalonia is part of Spain. That's because for four decades prior to Spain's transition to democracy, 
Catalan was banned in local schools by the dictator Francisco Franco. Today's policy was agreed on to make up for the suppression. But now the current center-right Spanish government says enough time has passed to put Spanish on equal footing with Catalan, as the Constitution and the courts dictate. It wants to remove Catalan as a requirement in Catalan universities and force the region to pay for private Spanish language schools if parents demand it. Spain's Minister for Education and Sports, José Ignacio Huert, explained his proposal in Parliament recently. He said the goal was to, quote, Spanishize Catalan students so that they feel as proud to be Spanish as Catalan. Huert's plan has touched a nationalistic nerve in Catalonia and earned him the nickname Huert the Segregator. The threat of such reform is partly what pushed Catalonia to hold elections recently, elections seen as a vote on whether to hold a referendum for outright independence. Independence-minded parties want a majority but may not be able to form a coalition to govern. Tensions have gotten so high, even Spain's military recently chimed in. In an editorial in its official magazine, it said it was concerned that Catalan independence seekers were upsetting national unity and forgetting that it's the military's role to preserve it. The general running the magazine has since been demoted, but the saber-rattling was not lost on Catalans or any Spaniards. Spain was torn apart by civil war in the 1930s. At the war's outbreak, Franco's soldiers executed the then-president of football club Barcelona. So there's blood on the field, so to speak. And it adds solemnity to the team's more-than-a-club slogan. It also helps explain why, at this recent game, in the midst of the calls for Catalan independence, a packed crowd turned the stadium into a giant Catalan flag and sang the Catalan anthem. For The World, I'm Jerry Hatter in Barcelona. By the way, Jerry's own children go to public school and study in Catalan, but he doesn't speak the language. Find out why it's not easy, linguistically speaking, being an expat in Barcelona. That's at theworld.org. And while you're there, we've got a new World in Words podcast as well. Twenty-five years ago today, during the height of the Cold War, a Soviet court sentenced a 19-year-old West German to four years in prison. It was a high-profile crime. The guy flew a single-engine plane into Moscow and taxied right into Red Square. The world's Clark Boyd has the story. Back in May of 1987, Matthias Rust was fed up with the Cold War tension between the United States and the Soviet Union. He had a pilot's license but little experience, so he hopped into a small single-engine plane and told his parents he wanted to bank some flying time. For two weeks, he flew around Western Europe. A plan, Rust tells the BBC, was forming. I came to the conclusion that I need to do something that puts an end to this dead-end situation. I was thinking maybe I can just use this aircraft to just build an imaginary bridge between West and East. He spent two weeks psyching himself up. Then he took flight, telling the tower he was going to Stockholm. Instead, he headed for Moscow. It wasn't long before he got the attention of the Soviet Air Force. I was approached by a Soviet air fighter, circled around me two or three times, and then it passed me very close on the left side, so close that I can't even see the two pilots sitting in the aircraft. And I saw, of course, the red star of the wing of the aircraft. Roost thought he was a goner, but the Soviet plane left him alone, and he flew on. Each control tower along the way, the story goes, thought he was a local pilot. Eventually, Rust saw Moscow. He wanted to land in Red Square, but it was full of people, so he landed nearby, 
a landing caught on video by a British tourist. Rust taxied right into Red Square, to the surprise of onlookers. I was surrounded by a big crowd of bystanders, and most of them were Russians. And they were watching me, they were smiling at me. The first question of one Russian woman was what I came for and where I came from. And I said, I was just here to deliver a peace message to Mikhail Gorbachev. And I just came from Germany. And I said, oh, yes, that's good. Germany is our friends. As I said, no, 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 not East Germany. I see I'm coming from the West. Rust was soon arrested and convicted of illegally crossing the Soviet border and hooliganism. He was sentenced to four years in prison. The case caused quite a stir in the Soviet Union. For a while, Red Square was jokingly referred to as Moscow's third airport. But in the Kremlin, heads rolled. Gorbachev dismissed a number of high-ranking officials. Gorbachev was able to replace important officials with men of his favor. I think my, my flight to Moscow helped to bring both sides closer to each other. Matthias Rust served just a little more than one year of his sentence. He was released in 1988 as a goodwill gesture by the Soviet Union. Rust returned to Germany, where he's had legal troubles as well, including convictions for fraud and attempted manslaughter. He now lives in Hamburg and describes himself as a financial analyst and yoga instructor. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. Modern rebel Mr. Rusty showed the world Moscow bust flying in red barren shoes zigzag course that leaves no clues. He even got his own theme. We've got a great picture of Roost standing by a Cessna in Red Square back in 1987. You can check it out at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, George Steinmetz takes photographs of deserts while flying in a paraglider. That didn't go down well with the authorities in Iran. I've been flying near the uh, Afghan border, and I was accused of jumping out of a, an American, like a spy plane or something, and taking uh, aerial photos on my way down. That's coming up on The World. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's a drug named after the Greek god of dreams, and for almost two centuries, it's brought relief to people in severe pain. Morphine is a standard part of cancer care in the United States. It often brings comfort to people in the final stages of the disease. But in many less developed countries, cancer patients routinely die in pain. Legal, logistical, and cultural barriers prevent them from receiving morphine. Reporter Joanne Silberner brings us the final installment in our week-long series on cancer in the developing world. Malago Hospital sits on a hill above Uganda's capital city, Kampala. In an open ward, an elderly woman named Joyce lies in the fifth bed on the left. She's twisted the sheets around herself, her face contorted by pain. Joyce's husband, thin and bird-like, hovers over her. Joyce has cancer. It's spread throughout her body, and until a few days ago, she was on morphine. Then it ran out. 
Joy speaks to a nurse who translates. And she's consistently had pain. And she describes the pain to be deep, kind of into her bones. The Ugandan government makes and distributes its own morphine for use in hospitals. But poor management means the supply is erratic. Leslie Henson is a British pain specialist on duty at Malago Hospital. We're in a very difficult situation with patients who've been established and well-controlled on morphine and running out and not having access to that medication now. In many ways, morphine is an excellent drug for use in developing countries. It's cheap, effective, and simple and easy to administer by mouth. Yet according to the World Health Organization, every year more than 5 million people with cancer die in pain without access to morphine. The fact that what stands between them and the relief of that pain is a drug that costs $2 um, a week, I think is just really unconscionable. Meg O'Brien heads a nonprofit that advocates greater access to morphine. It's called the Global Access to Pain Relief Initiative. She says in well-off countries like the United States, there's enough morphine to treat 100% of the people in pain. And in low-income countries, it's just 8%. In many low- and middle-income countries, 150 by some counts, morphine is all but impossible to get. Sometimes it's because governments don't provide it, or they strictly limit it because of concerns it will be diverted to produce heroin. And many doctors are reluctant to prescribe it, fearing their patients will become addicted, something that studies have shown rarely happens. 3,000 miles from Uganda, in India, whether you can get morphine depends largely on where you're treated. Dr. Marianne Mukadden is head of pain relief at a modern and well-equipped hospital called Tata Memorial in Mumbai. She says she has no problems getting morphine. We have all the medicines which is necessary. We never run out. But in other parts of the country, it's a different story. Mukadden estimates only 1 to 2 percent of Indians with cancer pain get morphine. 28-year-old Dinesh Kumar Yadav has traveled 30 hours by bus to pick up morphine for his wife. He says she's bedridden with pain but can't get morphine in the North Indian state where they live. Dr. McCadden says part of the problem is a stifling bureaucracy. Many physicians in the North don't want to go through the rigorous licensing to store morphine. Now, there is a place where there are no barriers to morphine, but even here, at the Sipla Palliative Care Center in the Indian city of Pune, there are challenges. You don't see the challenges when you walk through the cool courtyard gardens with fountains and manicured walkways, or in the beautiful whitewashed buildings with large airy wards, each named for a flower. This is heaven on earth, actually. Actually heaven on earth. Heaven on earth, says Asha Dixit. Her mother came here last year in the last stages of breast cancer. She was in agony. Her shoulder had dislocated. It could not be fixed back. She had pain in the back. And sometimes there were hallucinations. And she died peacefully on morphine. I was sitting next to her. She said, Ashu meets Allego. She said, Ashu, I'm leaving now. Every patient here has cancer. The care is free, supported by Indian generic drug manufacturer Sipla, which supplies the morphine and pays all the other expenses. But even with all the center offers, the occupancy rate runs at only about 60%. One big reason, says Director Priya Kulkarni, is a result of patients' own concerns about morphine. They often think morphine equals death, 
and recoil when doctors suggest it. And, she says, many local oncologists don't want to send patients here for that reason. They don't want to give up on them when it comes to giving them hope and saying them something like, I'm going to refer to a palliative specialist, is indirectly saying them that there is nothing more I can do for you. But despite all the obstacles to morphine's use in the developing world, Kulkarni and others say things are starting to move in their direction. Overall, in low-income countries, morphine consumption is up tenfold since 1995, according to the International Narcotics Control Board. And several countries where, not too many years ago, there was no morphine, like Uganda, have at least some today, even if the supply is unreliable. Back at the hospital in Kampala, where the pharmacy ran out of morphine and Joyce, the cancer patient, had to go without, palliative care specialist Leslie Henson found a bit of luck. After leaving her patient, she stepped into an office, glanced at a bookshelf, and saw a forgotten bottle of morphine. It was enough to treat two or three people. Um, But hopefully we'll go take this to her, see what we can do. She troops back out to the ward, and another doctor administers the morphine. Joyce smiles, her face untwists, and her husband looks ecstatic. I asked Joyce if she's glad to get the morphine. Her husband answers. Very much, indeed. Other people in the hospital will remain in pain. There's not enough morphine to go around. But for the next few hours at least, Joyce will be pain-free. For The World, I'm Joanne Silberner. You can see the global disparity in morphine. We've redrawn a world map to show where the drug is available and where it isn't. You'll find that and all of Joanne Silberna's reports from this week's series at theworld.org cancer. Our series on cancer in the developing world was produced with support from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. What is it, Major Lawrence, that attracts you personally to the desert? It's clean. That's Peter O'Toole as T.E. Lawrence, of course, in the film Lawrence of Arabia. George Steinmetz is also a man attracted to the desert, so much so that he's devoted 15 years of his life to photographing desert regions around the globe. Like T.E. Lawrence, Steinmetz often traversed deserts by camel and on horseback. But to capture truly unique views of the desert landscapes he visited, Steinmetz hopped on his motorized paraglider. You can see the results in his stunning new book of aerial photographs called Desert Air. Steinmetz traveled to over 30 countries on seven continents on his quest. And like T.E. Lawrence, he was not always welcomed by the locals. Here's how he describes a run-in with the authorities in Iran. I've been flying near the uh, Afghan border. And uh, I was accused of jumping out of a, an American like a spy plane or something and taking uh, aerial photos on my way down. My problem was I had, a, I had permits and a, and a visa to be in Iran. I had permits from the civilian authorities, but the military authorities were not consulted and, and were not amused. And, of course, it wasn't a military plane. It was your paraglider. Yeah, but it was such a, it's a hybrid aircraft. They never seen anything like that. You, <laughs> you run to take off and land. It's kind of like a, my aircraft is kind of like a lawn chair with a, a leaf blower attached to the back and like a, almost like a spinnaker wing or a parachute overhead. So you're summoned back to Tehran. What happens then? Well, we had a meeting with Mr. Koshvad, who was in the ministry. I think it was the Ministry of um, like Religion and Guidance. He was a, a wonderful guy. 
but he he understood that my my intentions were were sincere when I was not a spy. He decided to to let me go. They wanted to to go through my film, and I realized it was kind of like unraveling a sweater. If I gave him one role, then they want another and another. <laughs> right. And I had hundreds of rolls of film. And also, I didn't think they'd be able to process it properly, and I just would just all get damaged. I never get it back, so um, I, I refused. But he was very nice. He he let me go, and he, he uh, told me that they would have to look at some of my film before I left, but I should leave it in a safe place in Tehran because where I was working in Sistan, Baluchistan province, uh, the government doesn't really have control of the area. And he was concerned about my safety and the safety of my precious pictures. Well, it, it sounds very troublesome, but while you were there, you got some amazing pictures of the city of Bam. Now, we should point out that uh, two weeks after you photographed it, Bam was hit by an earthquake, leveled the city. Uh, that must have been pretty shocking. I mean, have, have you been to other places that have changed so dramatically since you were there? I do exploration photography, so I usually don't go back to most places again. I usually go and I do my thing. I go and I check them out and explore them. And then I move on to another area, especially with a project like mine where I was trying to cover every patch of, of super dry land on the planet. I had a lot of territory to cover. Right. Um, so I didn't really have the opportunity to go back to uh, many places multiple times. But these deserts, when you look at them, they, they seem extremely sterile and they are fairly static. And so when people go in and um, even a, a car track can last in some desert environments for hundreds of years, the, the dry valleys of Antarctica, a footprint there will last a thousand years or more. And then uh, the frozen desert, you mentioned Antarctica. What was that like? Uh, well, it's really tough working down there. Um, I got a, a grant from the National Science Foundation, and they let me work out of McMurdo Station, uh, their main base to supply the South Pole. And I was in there for, for 10 weeks. They gave me pretty much carte blanche to go where I wanted to go, and I got um, they gave me 13 hours of dedicated helicopter time. So it was a great opportunity. But when you're down there, the environment's really tough. I went down there in the, the first flight of the spring, and um, when you're working there, they make you sleep outside, like in, in a tent in 30 below. Um, <laughs> Gosh. So you feel kind of like a husky, you know, when you're sleeping down there. And I'd have trouble with, like, the um, the camera getting frozen to my, to my face. Um, it was really tough. I mean, I, I was still a smoker at that time, and I had to carry a little Altoids box to put my to flick my ashes in because it's you feel like you're in a crime scene, but they don't want you to leave any trace. All all waste, even, you know, human waste, you have to take out of there. So um, they want you to leave no trace. But even your footprints there in the dry valleys will stay for uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years. Now, uh, referring to another desert, the Dead Sea Basin, you write, uh, if this was the promised land, it had been promised to too many people. There's one picture here of a nude beach uh, on the Dead Sea, and I'm looking and I'm seeing hardly a single man in sight. Oh, that might be a man right there. Um, that was the ladies' section. That's the ladies' section. I see. The men's section was adjacent, but right. behind so, a, a large wall. So there you are in your paraglider, flying over these naked women. Uh, pretty clever. What did they think? <laughs> well, actually, I got in a little bit of trouble there. I had scouted it out because it's the kind of situation you would never see from the ground because there are big uh, kind of barrier walls around that beach. But I, I scouted out in a small plane, and I thought it would be interesting. And so I went back on the Jewish Sabbath because it was more crowded that day. And I was flying over it, and, and when it was the kind of maximum uh, density of people. And I'm kind of a perfectionist, so I had to fly back and forth to get exactly the, the angle I wanted to get on the place. After a while, I noticed that there was a little green car that was following me around on the ground. Like every time I went up and down the beach, this little green car was shadowing me. And then uh, my friend Francois, who had been flying there with me earlier in the morning, came in the radio and said that the, the cops had, uh, had found our takeoff place and they were really hot and bothered. Oh, dear. And I should come back quite soon. Yeah, so what happened? Well, I got arrested again. <laughs> in Israel and, this time. Yeah. And, and, you're, uh, you're equal, equal opportunity anyway. 
was kind of curious. He was, he was an Arab cop. He was really uh, hot and bothered. He confiscated the camera, which I usually would, would never give up. And he took us back to the police station. And, he, and before I landed, I had, I had switched the memory card in the camera and started taking pictures like mad. And he went through all the pictures that were in the camera. And uh, there were a few pictures of naked people, but they were all pictures of men. And he said, oh, that's that's disgusting. And he, and he, he kicked me out of the police station for being disgusting. But there were no pictures of women there, so it was okay. Yeah, I mean, th- there is something slightly suspicious about a man uh, flying in a motorized uh, parachute taking pictures of, of things on the ground. Especially naked women. <laughs> so you, you've had some uh, scrapes with the law, but you've had actually had some physical scrapes, too. Uh, uh, spills, including hitting a tree in China. Yeah, I had a bad takeoff in China, and I uh, hit a tree and got 17 stitches in my face that morning. The aircraft, people think it's really, it's super dangerous to fly the kind of aircraft I do. And I'll grant you, it's not like a Boeing. But <laughs> um, but when you do have accidents, it's kind of like falling off a bicycle. Yeah. It, it's not, it's it usually get banged up, or, or but it's usually not catastrophic. George, there are 230 photos in this book, stunning photographs. But if you could, which one holds the most significance for you? Um. Well, you know, it's kind of like Sophie's Choice. They're all beautiful. I mean, all these desert environments, I find them beautiful in their own way. There was one picture, uh, some of the pictures that I take the most pride in are ones that were extremely difficult to do. And uh, I took a photo in uh, in Bolivia at a high-altitude lake where there was a bunch of flamingos taking off. And I was about, oh, probably about 40 feet above the flamingos on the lake when, when they took off. And the lake is up 14,000 feet, and it's very, very tough to fly at those altitudes. Well, our listeners can see that picture along with some of the other photographs that were mentioned in our interview with you, George Steinmetz, the photographer behind this new fantastic book of aerial photographs called Desert Air. Very good to meet you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Today's GeoQuiz begins with this number, 7.3 was the magnitude of the earthquake that rattled parts of Japan earlier today. The epicenter was some 150 miles offshore under the Pacific Ocean. It made skyscrapers sway in Tokyo, and it triggered a tsunami alert in the same region of northeastern Japan that was devastated by last year's massive quake and tsunami. No significant damage was reported this time, though. What we're looking for is the name of that region. It's a geographical area that includes all of the northern portion of Honshu, Japan's largest island. It also includes some of the prefectures that were traumatized by last year's disaster, like Fukushima and Miyagi. We'll get the answer and hear more about today's quake just ahead on the program. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For today's GeoQuiz, we asked you to name the region of northeastern Japan that was devastated by last year's earthquake and tsunami, and that was struck again by another quake today. The answer is Tohoku, on the northern part of the main island of Honshu. The world science reporter Ritu Chatterjee joins me now. So, Ritu, the quake on the coast of Japan today, mm-hmm. it doesn't appear to have caused any significant damage or loss of life. It measured magnitude 7.3. Now, last year's quake that uh, caused the deadly tsunami and the later problems with the nuclear plant, that was a magnitude 9. 7.3 versus 9, not a big difference in numbers, but a big difference in damage. Why? 
Well, Marco, that was my first question to British seismologist Roger Mussen, who I spoke with earlier today. He's the author of a new book titled The Million Death Quake, The Science of Predicting Earth's Deadliest Natural Disaster. And Mussen told me that the scale for measuring earthquakes isn't a linear one. The scale actually goes up in steps of 30. So 30 times 30, the earthquake last year was 900 times more powerful. So it's not surprising that it was a much more severe event. Mm, Gotcha. Okay, 900 times more powerful. I mean, no wonder it caused so many powerful aftershocks. And and, and for months, um, Mm -hmm. was today's quake in the same seismic zone? It appears to be. In fact, Mussen's convinced that today's quake is probably an aftermath of last year's earthquake. Here's Mussen again. The earthquake last year had a huge rupture of the plate boundary interface, and um, that sort of disturbed all the crust in that area. So I'm, I'm quite sure that today's earthquake was tectonically related to last year's. Wow, that's incredible. Over a year and a half later, aftershocks yeah. from, from that big one in 2011. So does this mean there are going to be more aftershocks in the region associated with the 2011 earthquake? Probably. In fact, I was looking up the U.S. Geological Survey's earthquake list, the running list of earthquakes that they have, and it looks like the 7.3 quake struck at 8.18 a.m. GMT. And there was another earthquake uh, very close by in the same area of magnitude 6.2 at 8.31 a.m. So, you know, I won't be surprised if there are more and Japan's in a highly seismically active area anyway. Mussen told me that the next big one to hit Japan would probably be of the south coast of Honshu, something that Japanese scientists have known for many years. And this or last year's earthquake should not distract Japanese authorities from being prepared for that one. Yeah, for sure. So Mussen's book, as uh, you said, is called The Million Death Quake. Does he really think that there's likely to be an earthquake somewhere that will actually claim a million lives? Well, he thinks there could be a million death quake if we aren't careful, that is, if we aren't prepared. Okay, so how do we prepare? Does he suggest where such a quake will hit? Well, Marco, first we have to understand the factors that determine the death toll of an earthquake. Mussen says there are three factors. Firstly, you have to be in a place that's in a seismically active zone. And secondly... It has to be somewhere where uh, the population is very high, um, particularly the population density. Uh, and thirdly, it has to be a region where the buildings are essentially not well constructed. So, Marco, constructing earthquake-resistant or earthquake-proof buildings is very important. You know, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti comes to mind. That's why Mossen thinks that a lot of developing countries where buildings aren't made earthquake-proof are indeed at risk of seeing a million-death quake. However, the main point of his book is that we can avoid, you know, million deaths. We can reduce the losses if, one, we can educate people in places that are at risk, and two, if we build wisely in these places. It'll just take a lot of long-term thinking and planning. The World Science Reporter, Ritu Chatterjee, thank you, as always, for stopping by. My pleasure, Marco. The earthquake and tsunami in Japan, that was perhaps the biggest story of 2011. This year's big story? How about this? Open Gangnam Style! Yep, that's all we need to play. Between Gangnam Style closing in on a billion YouTube views, not to mention all the spoofs, I think we all know what the tune sounds like at this point. No doubt it's been enormous and consequential. The money that it spawned for the artist, a jovial Korean named Sai, and the shift in perception of Korea from industrial powerhouse to a place with some intriguing soft power and bubblegum pop, all that made Sai and Gangnam Style the story of the year. 
according to the Seoul Foreign Correspondence Club today. Tempest in a teapot? I don't think so. Just ask Floshan Shikar, who runs a blog about arts and culture in Korea called Korea Boo. So Floshan, in Seoul, this is a huge story, and it's not just about cultural pride, is it? It's a big business story. Definitely. I mean, it's not just the K-pop song that's gone global right now. It's actually affecting all the businesses. It's affecting you know, how even we run our blog right now, because more and more people are trying to learn more about K-pop. And do you have a sense of how much money it's generated overall for the music industry in Korea? Is it is it quantifiable? I'm not sure about the you know entire industry, but I know you know there was a report about how size made you know well over a million dollars just on you know YouTube itself, just because of you know all the views from his official music video, from all of the spin-offs that has been created, all of the spoofs that's been made. So I mean, it's been quite a lot of uh, revenue being generated just for himself. And it's not just Psy. There are bands like 100%, Big Bang, Ailey, Boyfriend, The Sia. Here's one that's very popular right now called Girls' Generation. This is a song called Oh. Now, Flotion, it just tickles me that you've got this 21st century bubblegum pop music from bands like Girls' Generation, imagery in their video that is totally American. And this is part of an initiative that was triggered by the Korean government. They wanted for this to happen, didn't they? K-pop is, is such a huge export for Korea. The government has been supporting it. They've been, you know, helping it out a lot. They've been, you know, regulating it. They've been trying to make it, you know, even go bigger than it already is. I mean, Psy is closing in on a watershed mark. No artist has ever done it. One billion views on YouTube for one song. Most of those views came from the U.S. What I want you to tell Mm -hmm. us is whether Gangnam Style was a freak occurrence, or do you think there's going to be an increasing appetite for K-pop in the U.S.? It's actually strange because Psy's song and his style is actually not as you know, K-pop as other other groups are. So it's it's really hard to tell whether or not his song and his success will actually equate to K-pop becoming successful. But I think the best way and, the, you know, the easiest way to figure this out is when Size releases his new album and whether or not people actually enjoy the music and not just the one-hit wonder kind of style that people think that it might be. Well, Floshin, uh, it's great to speak with you. Maybe you can take us out with uh, a, a tune that you feel is more representative of K-pop right now, something that you really like. There's a song called uh, Blue by Now that I really like right now, so I'd uh, you know, love to share that song with you guys. All right, so we'll go out with Blue by the Korean artist Nell, provided to us by Floshin Shikar, who actually is in Seoul right now. He's the head of the arts and culture blog, Korea Boo. Floshin, thanks so much. Thank you. This week, the world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, 
The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. And by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.